Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Frustration over vaccine holdups as Taoiseach assures the government is exhausting every avenue but that supplies are limited. Now in terms of the global supply issue, there are three major continents that are manufacturing, China, Europe and the United States. There's no magic tree out there that we can pick vaccines off. New guidelines to slash insurance awards, but will it bring down the cost of insurance premiums? On our first panel this evening, we're joined by Fine Gael TD Kieran O'Donnell and Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly. Later in the programme, with strict restrictions on the cards until mid-May, could pubs and restaurants potentially open up their doors to the vaccinated this summer? And our new motorway speed cameras key to saving lives, or are they for catching people out? Michael Healy Ray joins us. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Well, we're joined now in studio by Fine Gael TD Kieran O'Donnell and Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly and via Skype by Kingston Mills, Professor of Experimental Immunology with Trinity College Dublin. And Kingston, if I could start with you, whatever about magic trees with vaccine hanging off them, what do you make of the government's efforts to secure the greatest number possible of vaccines in the quickest possible time? How would you rate it so far? Um, a lot of it is outside their control, unfortunately, because um, it's really down to the manufacturers being, not being able to provide the, 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 the vaccines. Um, both AstraZeneca um, in particular have had difficulties with production, and that has resulted in delays in supply to all the European countries, not just Ireland. Um, some countries like Denmark have um, been astute enough to do their own deals separately to buy some of the Pfizer vaccine that was unused by um, Germany and other countries who, who didn't have the capacity to use it. Um, but we've missed that opportunity now. And um, really, it's down to waiting and seeing if, um, you know, the companies can um, solve the production problems. And these are complicated processes making the vaccine. So that's a big issue, in particular for the adenovirus vector vaccines, AstraZeneca and the, 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 the Johnson & Johnson. The Johnson & Johnson have also said that there's probably going to be delay in the um, supply of it, which is expected to be licensed tomorrow by the EMA. If we miss the opportunity like the Danes did to get additional supplies within the European Union, is there a way to do it outside the European Union without falling foul of our EU colleagues? Yeah, well, I mean, Hungary and some of the other Eastern European countries have now licensed or are about to license the, the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik. And um, 
the EMA have a centralised licensing procedure for vaccines, but countries can, in emergency situations, do their own licensing, and that's what happened in Hungary. Ireland could, in theory, do that, but it's very unlikely that the HPRA here would do that because they tend to um, be very much aligned correctly with the EMA policy on it. And I think you won't see a vaccine licence in Ireland that hasn't been licensed by the EMA. Is it not worth taking the chance on the Sputnik vaccine, though? Have you looked at it? Do you think it's a good enough one? I think it's a brilliant vaccine. Um, the vaccine is another one of the adenovirus vector vaccines, um, which is the same as the AstraZeneca and the, and the Johnson & Johnson. But it's actually used extremely clever technology. One of the issues with these va vaccines that are made with what are called vector vaccines, you get what's called anti-vector immunity. That means that the first dose of the vaccine, um, you get immune response against the, the vector, that's the virus that carries the, the, the nucleic acid for the SARS-CoV-2. And that stops um, or it can reduce the second dose working as well. And the Russians have got around this by using two different viruses, two different adenoviruses for, for the first and the second dose, which means that the, this, this anti-vector immunity is not an issue. And that has resulted in 92% efficacy for their vaccine. And looking at the data, which is published in The Lancet um, a little over a week ago, it looks really fantastic. Uh, so I absolutely think this vaccine is a great vaccine and if we can get our hands on it, we certainly should. Louise O'Reilly, should the government be looking beyond the EU to Russia and maybe even indeed to Britain to be getting extra supplies? Well, I think the government needs to be looking uh, to anywhere that they can get uh, the supplies from. Uh, I was in, in this studio a couple of weeks ago with one of Kieran's colleagues uh, and, and he pronounced, though not a doctor, uh, he still managed to pronounce that the Russian vaccine doesn't work. Uh, proven not to be effective, he said, proven not to work. So I think it's good now uh, that they have recognised that, uh, you know, maybe the, it, there is a possibility for us to look beyond. I know my colleague David Cullinan raised this issue with the Minister for Health in the Dáil and he said he would explore that. I think what people want to hear from the government is that they are willing and open to exploring any and every option. There's no doubt that we've been let down by AstraZeneca. There's no doubt that we are behind. But the litany of missed targets is simply frustrating people at the moment and they see other countries and indeed other parts of this island moving much further ahead, much quicker. They want to know why this is happening. They want to know that the government have a plan and when they put targets in place that they are sure they're going to be able to meet the targets. That hasn't happened to date. I think it should happen. And I do think the government need to be absolutely proactive about this. They need to rule nothing out. Follow the <coughs> experts, follow the public health advice. I heard what Kingston said in relation to the Russian vaccine. He called it brilliant. I'm not a doctor, so I can't pronounce on that. But we have plenty of people who can. What people want to know is that the government will be proactive, that they will ensure that when promises are made, that those promises are kept and that we can secure a supply of the vaccines because that is what we need. We need to get this to be able to get back to some class of normality. Kieran, the criticisms that Louise is making apparently were voiced by many of your own party colleagues tonight at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting. And is your own party even now becoming frustrated at the performance of government in relation to getting the vaccines into the country to be distributed? I think, we were, I think along with the general public, many members, including myself, are becoming frustrated with, I suppose, the procurement process at a European Commission level. And clearly you would have to question the level of due diligence they did around the public procurement process with the various individual companies. I think uh, there was a, a bit of good news today where 
um, there's now Pfizer are giving uh, an extra uh, 46,500 vaccines to our good cells. We'll have those in the next two weeks, and that's positive news. I don't Although think. small in the context no, of how I far behind I we I, are on the original see, targets. I think when you look at our model here, is based around um, looking risk factor, risk, risk factors. So we've given it to people that are most at risk. And secondly, if you look at other countries, uh, certainly in terms of the second vaccine, that may not be known, but we're actually ahead of, of the North. The North would be ahead of us in the first vaccine. Is that necessarily the best way of actually distributing the vaccine? Because there's plenty of evidence to suggest the one shot is fine for 12 weeks or more, that we should That's perhaps have been giving more people the first shot instead of giving a second shot. Government take their advice from NEFID and the, the Russian vaccine, that's currently being looked at by the European Commission. Actually, I no, share... we have Kingston's experts. Yeah. We'll ask Kingston. Kingston, should the government have waited more before giving the second shot to people? I think there's very good scientific evidence to suggest that waiting, having a longer gap between the first and second immunisation makes sense from an immunology perspective because the response to the second shot can be better if the, if the interval is longer. The only slight concern is that if the first shot is not effective, then you're putting the people at risk that have been immunised. But in my view, on the balance, I would in favour of leaving an in, a longer interval between the first and getting as many people as possible vaccinated with the first shot and keeping vaccine uh, uh, in in hand, um, waiting for it to be given to the second shot doesn't make sense to me. Every shot that comes into the country should be put into people as quickly as possible, in my view. The, the Johnson and, Johnson, um, there's, there's no scientific and, 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 reason I mean, for, 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 for you, delaying. I think we as a government have to be guided by NEFID. We have gone with a, a model which is basically working with the expertise in Europe around EMA in terms of licensing of the, the various vaccines. Is the frustration in terms of, of, of the vaccines not coming here quick enough? Yes. However, by the end of this week, 600,000 people will have, have been vaccinated. Have you trusting of the European Commission's approach in relation to this? Should you not have been braver, like the Danes or indeed like the British, in actually making sure getting things quicker and earlier well, and giving them? In fairness, the Taoiseach has made contact with Germany and other countries. But I, I think the key focus now is I think we have to get to a model in Europe where you, you, you use it or lose it in terms of the vaccines. But I think, I think the vaccine story is a good news story for people because it's, it's effectively saving lives. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. What do you make of that, Louise? Yeah, this notion that somehow, uh, you know, it, it's, it's Europe's fault and, and Kieran and his colleagues can sit in this studio and in other places and, and shrug their shoulders and just go, well, we are part of the European Union. Uh, you know, Michael Martin, security, Gabriel, just supply, bear with yeah. me, Kieran, please yeah. don't interrupt me. We are part of the European Union and it behoves the head of government, the deputy head of government and all of the people at the cabinet table to ensure that they are being proactive about this. The feeling is, by the way, and the frustration comes from the fact that there is no belief that the government are going to be proactive, that all they're simply doing is looking for an excuse for why everything is delayed instead of going out actively sourcing vaccines wherever they can get them, not dismissing every single suggestion put forward. And we have tried as the lead opposition party to be constructive. We have put forward solutions, we have engaged, we have supported where we absolutely could. Model, but um, we, have a, we have a government um, now um, who are content to simply shrug Louise, their shoulders and try and blame Louise, somebody else. Louise, the stops with Louise, them. Said, she, the Louise said she's not a medical person, neither am I. We take our advice from NEFID. Uh, NEFID have given very solid advice in terms of the vaccine rollout. The vaccines have, AstraZeneca has been a major serious problem. They've missed major deadlines. The government now, as Louise says, 
have been and are proactively looking at all options in terms of getting the vaccine. But in my view, I, I'm not... Kingston obviously would have expertise. I would like to see any vaccine that we're using being licensed by the EMA because that gives absolute certainty well, around the vaccination. There's something else I want to ask you about Kingston and that's antigen testing because lots of people are saying if we are going to have a delay in getting people vaccinated and we want to reopen society and get more people back into their workplaces, could antigen testing be part of the solution? Absolutely. So antigen testing, just to explain to people, is a more rapid way of testing for the presence of the virus. And in some ways, it's a better test, in fact, than PCR because PCR can be oversensitive. It can pick up um, nucleic acid after people are no longer infectious. So antigen testing, if it's caught at the peak of infection, can be very effective. And the big advantage of this, it can be done very quickly and it can be done much, the logistics of doing it are much simpler than doing PCR testing. So it's a screening modality that's, that complements, not, not replaces PCR. So some businesses are already using antigen testing for their workforces before they go to work in the, on, the, on maybe twice a week, everybody is screened. And, um, you know, people who are, are, are positive are then obviously not allowed into work. We're, we're doing not antigen testing, but a rapid form of PCR testing in Trinity as a, as a sort of a volunteer um, system to um, screen out people that otherwise would not be detected. So all these modalities that complement the HSC PCR testing have a huge place in getting work forces back in action, getting schools back, getting universities back, face-to-face -face teaching. So absolutely, antigen testing has a huge place to play. The, the UK okay, are invested so, so. heavily in this. The Swiss have invested heavily in it. The US are now starting to invest in it as well. So okay, we must thank do you. it. Thank you for that, Professor Kingston Mills. No, Kieran, yeah. why is the government doing this? Or is Neffet telling you not to do that as well? Well, Neffet were out early this morning, Colm Henry has basically stated, and Kingston made reference in terms of the schools, and I'd very much welcome antigen testing, but Colm Henry has stated that it, he doesn't regard it as reliable enough to use uh, with, with schools. And he, they make reference to that. It's, it's very good when people have symptoms, but it's not particularly good when people do not present symptoms. I believe it has a major role to play, but in a complementary to PCR testing. Which is what Kingston said. Yes, but, but Kingston but is, made specific reference to schools. Is, is Neffert perhaps been too conservative in relation to antigen testing? And is the government then in turn too afraid to do anything that might be seen as not following the instructions but from sure, Neffert? I don't have an expertise in, in the medical side or anything like that. We have to take our advice from Neffert. I think and Tony Hoolan and his colleagues, they've done... They've, I think, served the country well today. Okay, Louise, would like to see a rapid no, nobody, nobody is suggesting that NEFIT haven't served the country well or that they're not working hard. Of course they are. And nobody also is suggesting that antigen testing uh, is some sort of holy grail. But what it is, is another way to supplement the test and trace. But actually, mm -hmm. if we get down to brass tacks on this, Kieran, and, and you'll be aware of this, I'm sure, the target that was set for people to, to test and trace uh, was to recruit 2,000 people. We're not even close to that yet. We're over a year into this pandemic and we still see the government constantly running to catch up, constantly running behind and not being in a position to be proactive. People want to see you being proactive. They want to see the government being proactive okay. and they're just the not proactive. seeing We actually know we have another guest I want to yeah. bring in. We're joined by the GP, Dr Nina Burns. How frustrating is it for GPs who are there doing vaccinations, wanting to do more, to hear that the supplies that they should be getting are delayed? 
So look, it's very frustrating because we, we have our groups ready to go in the over 70s and we've sort of counted on getting a certain amount of vaccines every two weeks. Um, we just got an email this week saying that we can expect to have a 15% reduction for the next number of weeks, which will then pick up at the end of the month. Um, but what that means is, you know, again, we're due to do our over 80s now starting next week in Monkstown on probably delivery on Monday and Castlenock delivery on Friday. Um, and so we won't be able to book the clinics because we don't know how many we're getting. Um, and that, that's just increasingly frustrating. Um, they have assured us that in the next two week batch that we will know a week in advance how many vaccines we're getting. But it, it's just, you know, we, we understand there are supply issues, but it's the last minute communication is making organizing clinics and vaccinating people really difficult. We didn't have to cancel anybody. Thankfully, we got our vaccines, but there are many clinics around the country ended up having to cancel people. I've, I've heard of places where they managed to vaccinate in the morning, but not the afternoon. Um, and patients, you know, we, we're the ones that the patients are calling. We're the ones that the patients are asking, and they are incredibly frustrated. And we're bearing the brunt of the stress trying to manage it, but we're also bearing the brunt of the patients who are increasingly frustrated. Karen O'Donnell. Once again, I fully appreciate the frustration for Dr. Burns. Uh, we've 800 people at the moment, over 85, that you have yet, will hopefully get the test this week. But there are over 72,000 of the over-85s that have got the, the test. Got the vaccination. Got the vaccination, rather. Um, and going back, what we want to do here is to ensure, in my view, that the Commission get their act together and in, engage with the suppliers to make sure that they steady up on the supply coming in Okay, and and, and furthermore, furthermore, the government are looking at other ways in getting vaccination as well, uh, vaccines as well. But I think it must be done on a basis that what we're taking, the vaccines we're taking are safe and certified. Okay, you've made those points yeah. already, Louise. It's very simple. Another day, another communications failure by the government. Nobody is suggesting that they have absolute control over the supply. They don't. But they do have control over how they communicate with the people who are going to be delivering it. And we hear there from doctors. I hear it myself in my offices, in, in, uh, in my constituency, from, uh, from people who are calling and saying that they have had appointments cancelled. It's good mm. that Nina hasn't had to do that for any of her patients. But we know that those appointments are being cancelled and they're being cancelled at short notice. So let's look at what the government can can control, they can control their communication. They're not doing that. It's more communications failures and that is what is leading to people's okay, frustrations. Nina, I want to go back to yeah. Nina. Nina, what do you think can be done to get this back on track? Look, as I said, you know, I, we respect that they can't control the supply, but we, we would just like communication going, look, there's a sh like they've spoken this week about a shortage of AstraZeneca, but we're actually giving Pfizer vaccines and they announced this morning that they're getting more Pfizer. So, can they explain to us why we're having a 15% reduction this week? You know, we, we'd also like to know why we're only getting a certain amount of syringes and needles every week. Why can't they be delivered on the PPE portal? And, and that's a whole other story because they changed the one thing that was working well, which was the PPE portal where we could order our PPE. And now we're getting these deliveries we didn't ask for. So look, I, I tend to agree. I, I'm not going to fault the government on the supply. That's not their fault. But I really would plead with them that if they let us know what's happening, we can then communicate that to other people. But I'm increasingly frustrated saying to patients, I only know what you heard in the press because that's really most of the information we're getting is coming that way. Where we get some information, but you know, a lot of it about uh, the supply of vaccines and how we're going to get them and, and changes in various ways. We're, we're hearing in the press before we hear it any other way. Okay, well, Kieran O'Donnell, you want to get in on yeah, that. Two, two, two aspects. The HSE came out 
last Friday and held their hands up that the communication to the GPs was inadequate. I would hope that had been corrected. Secondly, I would hope that the communication that Dr Burns got was before the 46,500 extra Pfizer vaccines had been allocated to Ireland, which will be coming in over the next two weeks. It has to be prioritised for the patients that Dr Byrne is dealing with in terms of the cohort. You might be hoping, but do you not think that the government should be demanding? Mm. Absolutely. I am, uh, it's the, they're, they're one and the same. Let's be clear, Matt. Every single one of us wants the government to get this right. We are absolutely behind it. But the communication failures, and it's not just on the vaccine, Karen, and you will be aware of this, the communication failures are not acceptable. What they need to be is in charge of those things that they can control. They need to be respectful to the people that they are charging with the job of delivering these vaccines. And they need to do the, the very least that they can do is ensure that they have the consumables, because those are things they can control, that they have the consumables, that they have the syringes, that they have the necessary equipment and we know they can't control the supply of the vaccine but they can control communication they are not controlling the communication and that is really regrettable and that's what's leading to frustration. Okay, Dr Nina Burns one other thing I want to ask you about it's now estimated that one in eight cases since the pandemic began are of those under the age of 18 who are going to be so far behind if they get vaccinated at all how worrying is that for you or do you think that they should be left out in the open air as some sort of uh, deterrent what way would you deal with this? I mean, look, obviously, we'd love to vaccinate younger people as well, but the vaccines are not licensed under 16, in fact, under 18 in most cases. And, and thankfully, that age group, unless they have other serious medical conditions, for the most part, are not what we call the at-risk group, that if they get infected, it's likely to be a much more mild disease. So it is appropriate that we're vaccinating high-risk people first. Um, and then, although there will be cases in younger people, you know, a lot of that is down to just uh, passage in the community from person to person. And I guess the most important thing to reinforce in that age group is social distancing, wearing masks, um, you know, keeping your contacts low. And, you know, we are going to have to open up. We need to get these people back into school, you know, especially those under 18. I think we are doing it the right way. I think it's really important we do it slowly and reevaluate every two weeks. We probably didn't do that last summer. So we need to just check every two weeks. Are we OK? It, it looks like we're OK after the first two weeks of school. Hopefully we'll be fine after the next two weeks of school. But, you know, really what we want to protect is our hospitals and are really vulnerable people. And, and we are doing that quite well. The numbers are going down in those cohorts. OK, thank you very much, Dr Nina Burns, for being with us. Our studio panel is staying with us because after the break, insurance payouts slashed under new guidelines, but will it reduce what you're paying for premiums? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Finnegan's Kieran O'Donnell and Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly have stayed with us in studio. We're joined now via Skype by Tracy Sheridan, owner of Kidspace Play Centres and director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform, and also via Skype by solicitor and former president of the Law Society, Stuart Gilhooley. But Tracy, I'll start with you because the government has given the green light to slash insurance payouts and compensation. How do you feel about that as a business owner paying a high premium for insurance? Um, I absolutely welcome the 50% reduction um, that they have done with the government guidelines. Um, it's not quite the 80% that we were hoping for to bring us in line with England and Wales, but anything that will help reduce the unaffordable policies that business owners are facing is a bonus. Yeah, but what confidence do you have that the insurance companies will pass on the benefits of the lower compensation by way of cheaper insurance premiums? Well, the insurance companies have been at pains to tell us that uh, the cost of claims are what drives the cost of premiums. And um, so they've got exactly what they needed to now perform and to pass that on. And um, further to the government um, cabinet decision last night, um, the risk associated with uh, policies has now reduced from next month. So that absolutely has to be passed on immediately in renewals to the tune of at least 20% at the beginning. And how important is that to businesses at present which are struggling with cash flow, many of whom have no cash flow at all because they're closed? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are, are currently, we have massive policies. Um, one of our play centres is 26,000, the other is 13,000. And we're having to pay them the whole way through this lockdown. So out of the last year, we were open for six weeks. Um, and that's not the only bill, So, but it is a big one. It's a very significant one. And we need help on that and we need reductions on that immediately. Um, our point is going to come where the amount of bills businesses have, like myself, it's going to be too high. We're not going to be viable and we're going to have to close. And, you know, insurance companies have to take responsibility there and pass on those savings immediately, like they've promised to do so many times. Stay with us there, Tracy. Kieran, of course... You know, we've heard from Insurance Ireland saying that there's no guarantee they can bring down prices quickly. We did ask them to come on the programme mm. tonight. Nobody available to do so. I mean, surely isn't this something the government should be insisting upon, an immediate reduction in the charges to customers? We are. And the Minister with Responsibility for Insurance, Sean Fleming, has written to the CEOs of the major insurance companies. He'll be meeting them. He'll be meeting that, that particular uh, demand very and do you clearly think, will they answer it positively? Well, can, well can, can I just make two aspects? Number one, we had all the insurance companies in before the Finance Committee back in 2019. I identified and revealed that they were making 100 million of super profits above what they needed to earn. They gave a commitment on the day in public that they would reduce their insurance premium pro rata with the reduction in awards. And furthermore, what's in these new guidelines, and I want to pay compliment the judges overall for agreeing this, bringing this into being, ensures that you have absolute certainty between the awards under PIBE and the courts. So, and there is you're a 50% reduction on average, but some of the reductions 
are, are, are of a much higher order. Louise, would you be confident that the insurers will pay a blind bit of notice to what government and politicians want them to do? Well, I hope they'll pay uh, some attention to their own words uh, because it was actually on foot of questions from my colleague, uh, Pierce Doherty, that the CEO of Zurich and Allianz both confirmed that uh, you know the payouts and the, the amounts charged are calculated on the basis of future claims. So we know that the awards in future claims now are going to be reduced. So we, as an Oireachtas, have done our job. We have passed the legislation. The judiciary have done their job. It is now over to the insurance companies to make sure they are as good as their word because they were the ones that said that they would ensure that the premiums, uh, that when the awards were reduced, that this would be passed on to customers. They're now trying to wriggle out of that, saying it'll take a couple of years and the government need to absolutely no, insist that that does this. not happen. Stuart Kilhooley, you've been on the programme with us a number of times on this topic and I suspect you might be tempted to say told you so because you've consistently said that even if the insurance payouts dropped, that the insurers would not reduce their premiums. Yeah, well, I have said that, and I've said it every single time. And unfortunately, uh, nobody really was too interested in listening to us when uh, when, when we said that. Um, it, look, the reality is that the insurers will always find an excuse not to reduce uh, payouts or premiums. They'll always find they'll always be something else. It'll be Brexit or it'll be COVID or it'll be the markets or it'll be anything. It'll be anything ex anything except themselves to blame. They've, they've, you know, they've been lining their pockets at, uh, for years now, and it looks like they're going to lining their pockets now at the expense of personal injury victims. Uh, so I think it's absolutely incumbent on government to do something about this. They need to force them to uh, oh, to reduce. How premiums. can they do that, Stuart? Yeah, well, I mean, th what what what's happened here is we have a um, we have a situation where the the insurers have said uh, fifty percent is enough. We need eighty percent. It'll, it'll never be enough. So somebody needs to, to, to sit down with the insurers and say, look, we're, we've done our bit here. We've told the judges, the judges have listened, the judges have uh, made a substantial, severe reductions in, uh, in, in damages. You have to do your bit or we're coming after you. Uh, it's, it's simply not good enough to keep blaming injury victims and lawyers and judges and anybody else but themselves. We really have to put the blame on the insurers now and government have to do something to make them reduce premiums. You know, see, Kieran O'Donnell, motor insurance, just take that as one aspect. You're required by law to actually have the insurance to drive. Correct. But the state effectively gives private insurers the opportunity to make profit out of this. So isn't it incumbent on the state to make sure that this is done for a very small profit rather than letting them make out like bandits? What? The, the, the changes in the book quantum, which is making over a 50% reduction, we as a government, and Sean Fleming, who's the Minister for State, representing the government, will be making what Stuart is looking for abundantly clear. If the insurance companies are found wanting in this area, the government will not. And this is something How? we feel... Would you remove their licences to actually sell no, insurance if you I'm found they were profiteering unduly? No, no. They have given public commitments that they will reduce their premiums pro rata. And if they don't? Then that's something the government will we'll not look be... look at? No, no, it, the government will move to ensure... In what way? That's a subject, I suppose, the you government don't have know, to... do you, how so you do I'm it? Not, I'm not in Cabinet. But you've but, been but, on the Oroctus Committee, which has investigated yes, to ask the question. Yes, have you no ideas as to how you would actually force the insurers to give fairer, may, you, better prices to motorists and to businesses may, who have been you, fleeced for you years? You may have to bring in, from my, I'm talking person to personal capacity, the insurance companies will have to bring down the, 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 
the insurance premiums to hard-pressed people prorated to the reduction in awards. The judiciary have, have come to the table. The ball is now firmly in the insurance well, company's Well, let me go court. back to Tracy on that. Tracy, would you have confidence, having listened to that, that the government will act to make sure that your bills are reduced accordingly? As far as I'm concerned, the government have to do it. And if they can't convince them, then they need to legislate to monitor them and to hold them to account. And, and, and I agree on that. The, the, how you do that, uh, there may be a situation, I'm speaking personally again, where does it require registration might be quite sufficient, does it require a referendum? From my perspective, whatever is required needs to happen. But I would, hope, I would hope the insurance companies will come to the table and, I want and to go back to these Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I, I would hope, and I'm here in a personal capacity going on here. Um, I actually think what uh, what Kieran's government, and don't disassociate yourself, um, I don't I'm like not. your government, I'm but not. you, you should not. you should associate yourself with them. What Kieran's government need to do is what they haven't done, which is ensure uh, that they engage robustly with the insurance industry. And also, and I will say this now, if it is a case that more oversight is needed. My colleague Pierce Doherty is working on the legislation that will do exactly that because we don't have a massive amount of confidence in the government and their capacity the to be able to... The insurance companies ...and their capacity to be able to deliver on the this because their records to date show that people context, in small businesses are being The insurance companies asked, asked for one thing and across business sectors to revise the book of quantum. That has now happened. We brought in the Judicial Council Bill. They have, have now brought forward significant reductions. Okay. The insurance companies need to pass that on. Stuart, of course, legal costs aren't exactly cheap either, are they? Will they reduce proportionately with the size of the awards? Well, yes. And what you'll find, uh, Matt, is that the, uh, a lot of the cases now will be in smaller courts for a start. So a lot of cases now will be in the district court and the circuit court as opposed to the high court. But also you'll have a lot more cases being dealt with in, inside the PIAP system, which, as we all know, has a much lower cost base. So I think there's no doubt the legal costs will go down as a result of this. Um, what worries me slightly is that there may be an issue with access to justice uh, at some point where, uh, in fact, some solicitors may, in, fi in fact, find it uneconomic to bring such cases. So I would be concerned that that would be an issue. But certainly if, you're, if, you're, if your concern is uh, relating to legal costs, they will definitely drop. And there's any doubt about that. Thank you very much, Stuart and Tracy, for joining us here on the Tonight Show. Of course, another major financial issue which has got a lot of attention over the last week is the issue of Davies stockbrokers. And suggestions now, Louise, that maybe the way that this law gets sorted out is for somebody like Bank of Ireland to buy Davy and reform it. Would that be a way of sorting everything mm. out? Oh, I'm going to try and choose my words very carefully, Matt. <laughs> Let's just say probably not. Uh, I think the uh, what we need to and what the government need to do, and Karen knows this, of course, is uh, we need to find out who these 16 people are. We need to find out where they're working. Um, are they in positions of influence? Are they working in government departments? We don't we don't know this. It's it's a mystery to me why the government aren't more curious uh, about that. But for far too long, there's been uh, an absolute cosy relationship between but the people you at the top. The central of central bank saying yesterday that legal it wasn't possible to actually disclose the names of these 16. I don't believe that that's the case. I actually think that uh, that we should and we have a right to know who these people are, where they are working. Um, and um, if some of them are working in government departments, I think we do need to know that. I think people want to know uh, where they are. The idea that these people will just simply ride off into the sunset uh, is just not acceptable. It's not acceptable to, to people out there. It's not acceptable to me. And I doubt if it would be acceptable to Kieran and his colleagues, um, although I stand to be corrected uh, on that. I think that people do want to see accountability. I think that, you know, the fact that we have had 
uh, foot dragging on this for, for you know for a number of years. So there's a, a, a lag between the, when the report was done and when the announcements came out. We've had some resignations, but not 16 okay. resignations mm. and not 16 names in the public Indeed. domain. Indeed, it's Davies, which of course was involved in this deal, yes. has been punished with a 4.1 million euro fine. But 16 individuals set up a partnership to buy these bonds. And yet it seems that they have not been fined on an individual basis and they have not been named. Where's the justice in that? There is none. Um, for me, it's, it's very simple. If someone went into a shop today and they stole a sliced pan because they were hungry, uh, that's a criminal offence. The yes, Central Bank did say yesterday that there were no criminal offences. Yeah, and that's, and that's the point I'm taking up. I, I find it very difficult that where you take... Uh, in essence, take an Anglo bond at a significantly reduced price and make a huge profit on it, that that's not in some way a criminal activity. And furthermore, I, I would question um, in terms of why it took so long. This investigation has gone on six years with the central bank. Why did it take so long? Actually, it surprised you because yes. the history in this country of financial investigations is is that they take that long and longer. And if they ever get they finished, brought it, it was, they brought it under the Mifid legislation, and there are, in my view, and I'm not a legal expert, but that my understanding is under the existing legislation, they could bring uh, charges against uh, individuals. And the other factor here as well is that we have this. Uh, difficulty being based on reports that the, the individuals that are no longer in the firm are the principal shareholders. So there's, there's serious problems here. The, the, uh, in terms of the independent investigations that's been set up, the central bank must, must ensure that it's an expert from outside the jurisdiction. And furthermore, they must set down strict terms of reference and time frame. As far as I'm concerned, we, this sorry, is not we have over. Admitted, but would you fear that that it sounds like a good idea, but in the usual way, when it comes to Irish financial scandals, we'll be back here in about five years' time wondering when the report will be coming. Yeah, well, I think that there is a danger of that. And I mean, Kieran's very good at describing the problem, but not uh, being proactive about what it is his government are prepared to do about it. Unfortunately, uh, we have a situation where for decades, white collar crime uh, in this state has gone completely unpunished. And that, ca that has to stop. And that can only, the, the book stops with the government. I, it is up I, to the government I, I to legislate believe, to ensure in, that white collar crime is tackled. Of the institutions. That's why we have an independent central bank. Okay. From my perspective, they'd be found wanting here in terms of the time frame and bringing people to justice. And what are you going to do about it? We have to leave it Nothing. there for the moment. Our thanks to Lucy O'Reilly for joining us. Kieran O'Donnell will be staying with us after the break. Could pubs and restaurants cater indoors for the vaccinated this summer? And new speed cameras to save lives. But Michael Healy Ray says they're only there to catch people out. That's next. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
Welcome back. Well, Fine Gael's Kieran O'Donnell has stayed with us, but we're also joined by independent TD Michael Healy Ray. And it's becoming clear, Michael, that we're going to have to wait until May before the gradual reopening of society will begin, which must be worrying a lot of people in the hospitality sector their plans for reopening in the summer. Is there an argument to be made that, at least for the vaccinated, the over 70s, hopefully by that stage, that things should be opened up for them to be able to sit inside in pubs and restaurants rather than outdoors if they want to? Yes, well, I have spoken over the last number of days and weeks with the representatives of the different organisations in the hospitality sector, in particularly in County Kerry. And of course, they are very concerned as to how we're actually going to work the opening up. But we have to be very careful when we talk, for instance, about uh, outdoor areas. We have to remember this is not the south of Spain. We've often had Augusts that have been far weathered than, and colder and more miserable than the month of January That's and February. That's just Kerry though. No, no, no. Kerry is better oh, than everywhere else. Kerry, I'm but oh, but let, me, Kerry. let me finish please that, that you have to understand we can't be imagining that we're going to put everyone outside. Like So we, we have to dispel that. Of course Places like Scott's Hotel in Killarney has the finest outdoor area in the country. But like at the same time, not every rural pub can provide that because it's not practical to do so. Um, and you must remember that when you compare a rural pub in, in rural Ireland to Blow and Temple Bar, Blow and Temple Bar, they can't maybe accommodate for everybody inside. So they might have to be out in the street. So we have to cater for the different uh, sectors of the hospitality sector. But Michael, does that not imply that to get in to somewhere during the summer, you'd have to show either on your phone or some sort of written proof that you've been vaccinated, that you would want vaccination passports for Irish citizens in their own country? I, I didn't say that. What I'm You're saying, implied it what, what I'm saying is the practicalities of this common sense has to prevail. And you must remember in a rural pub, unfortunately, I'm sad to say this, there's a pile of room inside in them because of the fact that we have so few customers in certain parts of rural Ireland. So it's going to be perfectly safe for those people to be inside that we don't have to be saying to people, well, you have to be outside. It shouldn't be that case. But if they're going to be inside, don't they have to prove that they've been vaccinated? Isn't that what that, you're implying? That, that may very well end up being the case. I do not know, no more than you know. You don't but you have to plan for these things, presumably, Michael, because, well, Kieran, I don't know whether it came up with the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, mm. but apparently at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meeting tonight, Jim O'Callaghan and others were saying that this has to be planned for, that there has to be a look at bringing in vaccine passports. What's the Fine Gael position? Well, Fine Gael position is the, our MEPs in, in, um, brought forward uh, a suggestion to our own sister party in, in EU in terms of the European Union, looking at this green pass. And I think it probably will evolve in time into a passport. The wider question really here is, is the virus, is, the rate is coming down, the number of cases, there's less than 100 people in ICU. Nevertheless, we still have a deadly virus. I want to see Ireland reopened like anyone else, like Michael. But we have to do it uh, in a way that's safe. And we get to a point where, in my view, we have to be very cautious. But that means you need a plan. So Correct. talk about what might be in the plan. Well, the plan is that, that uh, can I just maybe on a, on a human note, NEFAD are considering tomorrow whether people will be able to visit uh, people in nursing homes, which I think is hugely important. Uh, and I hope the result of that, there'll be some form of relaxation. Government will be looking uh, in the last week of March about looking at, at from the 5th of April on, we're looking at 
areas at the moment, what are possible that maybe construction, uh, increasing the 5k limits in terms of people gathering. And then I think from there, you'll have to look at to see how it evolves over the next two weeks and then thereafter. So our, our approach is very much one of a cautious one, intermingling with risk, the virus coming down, the rate coming down, uh, coupled with the vaccine. Michael, the vaccine is key. When you're listening to that, do you think, are we going to be open for the summer at all? Well, look, all we're all hoping for is a safe opening. We don't want to open and have to close again. So what is done and what the way we're going to go about this, it has to be firm, it has to be final, and it has to be safe. And uh, nobody wants us to rush into anything. Yeah. But in fairness, I don't think we are going to be rushing into anything. But at the same time, we have to safeguard and put in extra measures to ensure that the businesses which we adore and which we want to see their doors open again, that they will be able to do so. In other words, that financially they will survive long enough to be able to open their doors again. There's when, something else I want to ask both of you about, because both of you will be regular users of the M7 motorway on your way to and from Dublin. And it's been decided that average speed cameras are going to be put in to try to act as a deterrent against speeding. And I believe you're not necessarily in favour of this, Michael. Absolutely not. Why not? Very clearly, first of all, the RSA have failed very badly in the, their strategy because uh, the, the nine-year average, very sadly, and any time we talk about deaths on roads, we have to say how sorry we are for the families who have been affected by this tragedy of losing a loved one on a road. But the nine-year average has been 163, whereas the RSA's strategy was actually for 124. So they're failing in the strategy they set for themselves. But... So if does you, that not suggest that things like average speed yeah. cameras, which have been shown to work in the Port Tunnel, for mm -hmm. example, in reducing the incidence of speeding, would be a very good idea, not just on the M7, but throughout the country? No, you're wrong, because the facts prove that you're wrong. In 2019, of the 140 deaths that we had on our roads, four, and I'm not making little of the fact that it was four, because remember, this is four human beings we're talking about that died on our roads, but four out of the 140 died in a space where the limit was 120. And now they're thinking of putting, well, they are putting these cameras up, now, why are they putting the cameras up? I'll tell you why they're putting the cameras up. Because they're penalising again the motorists. They're accruing money uh, in, in fines. And as far as I can see, the RSA are as interested in, in funds as they are in anything else. Because they're failing in their job and all they're doing now Michael, is targeting It's a motorway areas. with a 120 kilometres yes. limit. Yes. This is to stop people going above 120 kilometres. Do you really want to be going faster than no, 120 no, kilometres? No, you see, again, it's... If you look at what they're doing, the strategy of what they're doing, if a person so is caught, we'll call it, to be averaging 122 kilometres an hour, is, that, is, is it right and proper then that that person should be, be penalised and have penalty points? I just don't agree with it. When penalty Karen points came in, first of all... Can I just finish, yeah. please? Yeah. When penalty points came in, first of all, it was for a narrow, focused uh, offences and, and a smaller amount of penalty points. Now it's ever-increasing. That's a different, and I that's see a different issue. As I an attack on our motorists. Sorry. This has been put in between Junction 26 and 27 on, on the M7. It's a stranger stretch of road. Anyone who do... Like 120 miles, 120 kilometres is a high enough speed for anyone. Anything that improves safety is to be welcomed. You mentioned the port tunnel. Uh, they had 50% of people uh, breaking the limit. That's down to 10%. This stretch of the road, the, the, it's, it's regarded as unsafe. Let's see how it works. Uh, it won't be brought in until about May or June. 
uh, people will have plenty of forewarning on it. It won't extend, I expect, to the, the multitude of other roads we have. This is about saving lives, and I think we should be, have an open mind on it. Uh, well, I, I'm listening very carefully to what you're saying, but the last thing is the most important point you made. Mm. You said you don't think that it will extend. Of course it will, because I'll tell you why. If they find that they're catching a lot of people and getting money, they will, because that's what they've did with penalty points and with f fines already. They rolled it out and they... Michael, Michael is that not yeah. very cynical to no, think no, that not. people Michael, who are involved in devising Michael, road safety campaigns are, you, are, you, are only doing I, it to raise money? And are you trying to tell me it has nothing to do with money. I'm asking you, are you I'm, cynical well, enough that you well, think I'm, everything is reduced to money? I'm telling you that it's my opinion, which I am entitled to, that yes, one of the strongest factors they have in this, because it's not for road safety, because again, out of 140 deaths, four occurred it's in these places... Four we have to finish. We have to leave it there. Our thanks to Kieran O'Donnell and Michael Healy Ray for joining us. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. Back here tomorrow night at the slightly later time of 10:15 for the Tonight Show. Stay safe. Thank you very much for watching, and have a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.